We are in the second book of the New Testament, called the book of Mark, one of the four gospel writers. We've been in this from the beginning, not the beginning of time, although it may feel that way, but from the beginning of the book at any rate. And we will continue it, Lord willing, until we get through the end of it. And then I pick out another book to go through. That's the way we teach the Bible here at Faith. Because the Bible is meant to interpret the Bible. That's how you stay clear of some of the uh, more bizarre teachings uh, that people seem to somehow pull out of the texts. We are beginning Mark chapter 4 today. We're going to get through verses 1 through 20, which is pretty unprecedented for me to get through that many uh, verses. But we did it in the first service, so I'm confident that we can do it in this service. So before I begin, or actually as I begin, um, I just want to remind us about the fact that the placement of passages of Scripture within the text itself is also inspired. And I mention that because not all the time, but sometimes, maybe even most times, that the placement of this particular passage makes a lot more sense or is easier to understand clearly when you realize that what was said here and here and here was leading up to this, or this is there to emphasize or underscore, or to look at this, or even what comes after it. And so again, I just want to underscore the fact that even the placement of text among the text is inspired by God. Well, here we are, like I said, in the beginning of chapter 4, and where we've come to this point with the gospel writer Mark is that the emphasis that he is clearly been pointing out to us through the first three chapters is on Jesus' purpose in coming to earth, which according to Jesus himself in chapter 1, verse 38, was to preach. And he says there in verse 38 of chapter 1, for that is why I came. Now in the process of Jesus' mission focus, he's meeting all kinds of people in various places of what I call their spiritual pilgrimage. Everybody who is born is on a spiritual pilgrimage, whether they realize it or not. Even the most hardened atheist is on a spiritual pilgrimage. That's just the way God made us. Romans chapter 1 has a lot more to say about that and makes that a little more clear, if you're interested. So Jesus, as I said, is talking to the masses, and so you've got people on this continuum of abject unbelievers all the way up to those relative, at this point, handful of people who are believing in him. So from the calling of the 12, I'm referring now to the 12 that Jesus in particularly called to himself to carry on uh, his work after he was gone, they themselves were at various places from each other on their own spiritual pilgrimage, which if you're familiar with the the scriptures in the New Testament, you can kind of see that playing itself out. And the lights click on here and there for each one of them at different points in different places. Well, it goes from, like I said, from the believer all the way to the religious know-it-alls who had the pretense of some kind of a faith and some kind of a God known as the Pharisees. And so, again, we see all kinds of people being attracted to Jesus for, at this point in time, much more so for what he could give them in the way of a better life. But at this stage of the ministry, we see very few individuals who are clearly coming to Jesus and embracing Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
little has changed over the centuries from Jesus' advent. So let's keep this in mind as we approach what really is a pretty familiar pericope called the parable of the sower. And as we tackle this well-worn passage, I'm going to be taking it beyond what I'm going to call the classic interpretation or understanding through the recent ages. Let's begin in Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 9. Jesus began to teach again by the sea, and such a very great multitude gathered to him that he got into a boat into the sea, and he sat down, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And it came about that as he was sowing some seed, it fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen... It was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it and yielded no crop. And still other seeds fell into the good soil. As they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And Jesus was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As I said, the parable was delivered to the gathered crowds on that continuum of a spiritual pilgrimage. And Jesus gives the parable that I just read, and then he leaves it stand all by itself. And he walks away from the masses without explanation. Verse 10, in light of this, becomes quite important with some detail that Mark provides, which are implied, perhaps, by Matthew and Luke in their retelling of this story, but they are not stated by them as explicitly as Mark brings them. In Mark, verse 10 says, And as soon as Jesus was alone, now he wasn't all alone, but alone meaning he'd left the masses, that now he was with a relative handful of people who were followers along with, again, those 12 that Jesus chose unto himself. And they began asking him about the parables. In verse 11, Jesus was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but those who are outside get everything in parables, so that while seeing, they may see, but not perceive. And while hearing, they may hear, but not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand then all the parables? Meaning what? Well, this is kind of an entry-level parable. And Jesus is sort of saying, you know, if you can't get this one, how are you going to get the ones that are a little more detailed or a little more covert? But you see, Jesus is asking them a rhetorical question. And a rhetorical question is one that's asked, and he doesn't expect or even want an answer back. But he asks it, hoping to shake them up a bit. Something like an old platoon sergeant of mine used to say to us when he was getting frustrated, one of the few things that I can share in this audience, was, hey, get your heads out of your... Rest, relax, 
duffel bags and pay attention. Jesus doesn't want an answer. And then he just commences beginning his explanation of the parable. The explanation begins, the sower sows the word. Now again, let's go back for a second to to what Jesus said in chapter 1. In chapter 1, again, verse 38, Jesus said, Let's go somewhere else so I can preach, for that is what I came out for. Back when I was teaching on that passage, I thought it interesting that the what Jesus came to preach is left open-ended. And what I mean by that is that Jesus didn't say he came, for example, to preach the gospel. Specifically, he didn't come to preach the salvation message. He just says, I came to preach, leaving it very broad in general. The word there in the original language is the word caruso. It can mean preach, which it often does, or proclaim, to make proclamation. And maybe it's just totally coincidental, but some of us older folks in here may remember the uh, ages gone by, very famous Italian opera singer named Enrico Caruso. That's right. Now, as an opera singer, he had to be able to really proclaim. Yeah, and I'm not an opera singer at all, as you can see. But his name, I'm assuming, derives from Caruso, which is to preach and proclaim. No extra charge for any of that, okay? That is called useless information just meant to kill time, I guess. I don't know. Well, the word does, though, mean proclaim. And when you see the word preach used in conjunction with the gospel narratives, they generally focus around three things that the word preach or proclaim is joined to, and that is to preach or proclaim repentance, to preach or proclaim the good news, in fact, the salvation message, and to preach the kingdom of heaven. So cumulatively, the three are referring to much, much more than just the goal of somebody reaching one's eternal resting place. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not diminishing the salvation message in the least. But if you've had the misfortune of somewhere in your own spiritual pilgrimage of churchdom, of belonging to a church that pretty much preaches just the salvation message week after week after month after year, excluding what the Apostle Peter refers to in 2 Peter 1.3, excluding everything pertaining to life and godliness, then what happens is, is that the Christian faith is turned into little more than a fire insurance policy, meaning it's something just to keep me from burning up in a place called hell. And what this does is it makes the Christian faith's relevance to everyday life, this side of heaven, minuscule, if anything at all. Which is why a lot of churched people walking around may be able to proudly cite a handful of memorized Sunday school verses about being saved by grace through faith, or that God so loves the world that he gave his only begotten son, and you know the rest of that if you've been around, And they take great comfort in what really is a false sense of assurance of salvation while showing essentially zero fruit for their faith throughout their lives. And as James pointedly notes 
in the book that bears his name, James chapter 2, verse 26. Or just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So we want to keep all of this in mind as we pay attention to the explanation of the parable of the sower that Jesus gives us. Let's start verse 14. The sower sows the word. Well, who is the sower? Ultimately, it's God, of course, the Holy Spirit in particular. And in from here on out, what I'm going to be referring to as the classic understanding of this parable, the word the sower is sowing does in fact refer to the salvation hope in Christ alone. And so under the rubric or the pattern of the classic understanding, the four soils each represent the heart and the soul and the mind of the individual hearers who are exposed to the hope of salvation in Christ or the message of salvation. So we have four soils, we have four souls. So what? Jesus explains. Soil and soul Number one, these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and he takes away the word which has, which has been sown in them. Soil and soul number two. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, who when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy but they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. Soil and soul number three. And others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Soil and soul number four. And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word, and they accept it, and they bear fruit 30, 60 and a hundredfold. The classic understanding of the parable is that the message of salvation by grace through faith alone is the seed that's being broadcast. It's being sown. It's being spread out there. And it has a different impact on each of four kinds of people or each of each of four souls. Only the fourth soil and soul in the classic understanding of this parable, is living, active faith unto salvation, meaning only the fourth good soil is the person who is truly saved. There was some misunderstanding from what people said to me after the service in first service, so I want to make this clear. This is the correct and proper meaning of this parable in the classic understanding. Four soils, only the last soil is the truly saved person of God. And I'm not changing anything from that. I'm not saying, yeah, but, no, that's, that's just it, okay? So I just want to make that clear. Now, what I want to do, though, is let's take what I believe 
is a classic illustration, before we go on, of the classic understanding of the parable lived out. And I can't think of a better example or illustration than what we've known today as an evangelistic crusade. Probably the biggest evangelist who did evangelistic crusades known to mankind is Billy Graham. Absolutely. Barbara and I had the privilege of being part of one of his evangelistic crusades when we were living in the Seattle area. And then we moved here. And if you've been around here long enough, you know that quite a few years ago, many of the churches of central Maine brought in another internationally known evangelist called Luis Palau. And he did an evangelistic crusade down here at the Civic Center. Well, in an evangelistic crusade, by design, everything leads up to and climaxes with the salvation message. And an invitation is offered to receive Christ, to come on forward and all of that, and responses follow. Now, the responses that follow are from each one of those four types of people or four types of soil. And a non-response is a response for our purposes. So one person hears the words of the invitation to accept Christ as Lord and Savior, but the seed of God's grace in Christ throughout the crusade, has just bounced right off of his ears. And this scoffer is not impressed in any way, shape, or form. And, of course, he makes no bones about their own skepticism at the suggestion that there is such a thing as a real God, much less a real eternity in a heaven or hell. The second person hears the message. The invitation is given by the evangelist. And there's something now with this person about the salvation message that just strikes a chord with them. Perhaps they've been down in the dumps. Perhaps they've, they've understood at a certain level that God has been beckoning them and calling them, even though they don't have the language for any of that and all. They just know that their life is, is pretty dismal, and they know there's got to be something more. And so they hear this, and for the first time they have a sense of hopefulness that they haven't had in a long time. And for a season... They even have a, 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 a pretty intense curiosity and, and they take their crusade packet that was handed to them when they went forward with, with pamphlets or books or brochures or CD, whatever's in there, and they actually start cracking them and looking into them. But at the end of the day, it's pretty much a passing fancy. And in a pretty short time, the spark of hope suffocates and they're back wandering in a hopeless desert. That's soil and soul number two. Well, the Lord's been at work hard as he is on everybody, but in this case on soil and the soul number three. He's been doing this for some time, totally unspeknownst to them, because that's just the way God works through all sorts of of natural and not-so-natural circumstances. And when they hear a cogent presentation now of the salvation message from the evangelist, it makes perfect sense to them. It rings a certain tone that was not unfamiliar with them, and they receive it either actively, meaning they get up and they go down, or passively. they just like, yeah, okay, you know what, I... Okay, maybe that's, I guess that's what's been missing all along. And they sit there, and in their own way, you know, they kind of come to the Lord, or so it seems. But what happens with soul number three, and soul soul number three, is that life, just life, 
in general, crowds out any vitality of faith that was trying to sprout and maybe even began to sprout. What began as a life with great potential and perhaps even fruitfulness stalls in sort of an arrested spiritual development which adapts to the familiar surroundings of the world, unfortunately, becoming more of a weed that not only does not, but cannot produce any fruit. In my opinion, and that's all this is at this point, this third soil may be the predominant turf on which the seeds of faith fall on the abundant farmlands of Christendom through the ages. There isn't so much an active rejection of anything spiritual as much as there's a passive acceptance of thorns and thistles growing beside what was that little sproutling of faith and they choke out what might have been. The fourth person in the crusade crowd heard the voice of God in the invitation They responded by going forward, or not even necessarily as going forward, but they responded in all sincerity, not merely as some token observance, having been moved by the the dynamism or the passion of the sower and the moving music, but truly as a cry of their heart and of their soul and of their mind, pleading for the chance to begin a new life with a new, loving, patient gentle, benevolent boss. From that day forward, the person whose soil is good, oh, they continue to have good days, but also bad days, just like everyone else. But at the end of the day, that one is back right at the foot of the cross, being washed in the grace poured out for him at Calvary. Four soils, Four souls, only the last soil, the last soul is truly saved. All right, park that now. Stick that on a shelf. Nothing changes there. That's intact. I'm not contradicting that at all now with what I'm going to say next. As I said, this is the classic presentation and understanding of this parable of the sower. But now let's consider a couple of things that the Apostle Paul says. To the church at Rome, he writes in chapter 12, verses 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. A chapter earlier, the Apostle Paul writes, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unfathomable are his ways. Unfathomable means bottomless. And it means bottomless not that if you had the ability, you could get to the bottom. No, it means bottomless, that we're talking about God and we're talking about creation and we cannot plumb the depths ever to the bottom of God's wisdom 
and knowledge. Part and parcel of our doctrine of inspiration is that we cannot exhaust the meaning of the word of God. Now hear this plainly. I am not saying that the word changes from one day to the next or one epoch to the next or one culture to the next. It's not yes one day and no another day or black one day and white on the next. It means that just because a Christian has a good grasp of, let's just use, for example, the book of James, since I mentioned that. Somebody has a really good grasp of the book of James. They've read it many times over throughout their Christian life. Maybe they even did a study or two on that book. Well, just because they have a really good grasp on the book of James doesn't mean that they won't ever be able to go to that book and now they've plumbed the depths of it and they can no longer learn from it. You'll never see anything new from that book now that you've kind of pinned it down and nailed it down in every way, shape, and form. Now, so you don't hear the wrong thing, let me give an important caveat. You have to be careful with what I just said and how this is applied. Meaning you still have to have firm exegetical support for those, whoa, I've never seen that there before. Otherwise, you're right back to the, well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. Well, maybe you don't see see that in that passage, but that's what I get out of it. Well, you may get that out of it, but that doesn't mean it's right. So we can't ignore all the exegetical rules for understanding God's word properly. So in this vein, Remember the other, the classic understanding is up on the shelf now. In this vein, can we see this parable from an entirely different angle? Beyond just a salvation parable, addressing the mystery of salvation and the human heart. What if we view this parable as useful in describing the struggle of spiritual maturity as you're on that spiritual pilgrimage, all the way from unbeliever all the way up through the mature, solid, right there with the Lord Christian. A discipleship parable. What if we see this instead as a discipleship parable for the already saved and not just a salvation parable for the evangelist and the unsaved only. This is why I made a point at the very beginning of this to highlight that Jesus didn't narrow his I came to preach statement in 138 of the salvation message alone. Look again at verse 11 of chapter 4. Jesus was saying to the 12, to you has been given the mystery, in the original it's the musterion, the mystery of the kingdom of God. The musterion is that which God supernaturally, by his design for his purposes and his prerogative, God takes a musterion and he makes something supernaturally unintelligible to whoever he desires. And by the same token, he makes it very intelligible and understandable to somebody else. That's God's prerogative. God is God. I don't like that. You don't have to like that. But take it up with him, not me. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. The context of verse 11, as I said, is this hidden aspect of the meaning of the parable. 
and that Jesus' intent is that only those who belong to him are meant to understand it. So now, in this case, Jesus' closest followers, meaning those who truly were following him, all the crowds, they'd left all the crowds, and the twelve that he had called for that special role of being his disciples and apostles. What becomes, in this case then, of the symbolism of the sower, the soil, and the seeds which are sown, and the end result of those things, looking at it as a parable concerning the heart of the human, of every human, when confronted by every little seed sown by way of the word of God. Stay with me. Let's begin with the sower. Now, looking at this parable from this direction, who might the sower, or better, who might the sowers of the word be? The sowers become every instrument God uses to sow his word, not just the relative few few called evangelists or preachers to whom Christians, what do, they, what do we do? We bring our friends to the preacher, to the evangelist, and tell them, here, my friend needs to hear about Jesus, get him saved. The sowers in this view of this parable becomes instead parents sowing the truths of God's word to their children. It's called discipleship. In this view, it can even be the children sowing truth to their parents. Go figure. The sowers become the Sunday school teachers and the assistants sowing the word of truth to their charges. It's called discipleship. The sowers become the small group leaders, the ministry heads, the staff, the students who bring their friends whom they're discipling. The Christian employee, the Christian employer, the Christian teacher, the Christian teacher's aide the nursery worker, the daycare operator, and the VBS helper, whether they come bringing or in the situation they're in, bringing just a snippet of God's word, or they're bringing a whole library of God's word to their charges. It's called discipleship, meaning, paraphrasing, Pastor Matt, as a Christ follower, I should be discipling all the time. And sometimes while doing it, I may be delivering mail or stacking wood with someone. Are you catching the drift here? Or instructing my children in both word and in deed. Or I may be fishing or running around a soccer field or ordering a drink at Starbucks. So now what becomes the symbolism of the four soils? Well, according to at least one writer by the name of what? Oh, Matthew Willett, sowing is not an event or a moment, it's a lifestyle. And Pastor Matt elaborates on this all in what he's put together, calling it his grow study. And this is a study that he put together a few years ago, and he did it to, to take his youth staff through it. But since that time, he's taken the youth staff through it. He's taken the staff here through it. He's taken other youth pastors around, around the state and even New England or even the country, I think. Next is the world for Pastor Matt to take his growth study. But this, 
And this is basically kind of the thrust, although, again, any inaccuracies here, don't throw on him, throw on me. And in the growth study, you see the soils are the condition of any human heart at any given moment in their walk of faith. The soils are any human heart any time it is confronted with the truth of God's word. Whether it happens to be to the unsaved person or the saved person, the conditions of one's soil will determine what happens in that particular, at that moment, sowing of the seed of God's word. To help me, hopefully, explain this even more clearly, I'm going to borrow from something that Jeff Dion brought to we men last Sunday at Advanced Sunday when we dismissed the women, talking about basically, at least to me, I was making this connection as he was talking. Now, he had no clue as to what I was going to be preaching on today. But instead of talking about four seeds, Jeff set up four chairs. Chair number one, two, three, four. And again, I'm paraphrasing most of what Jeff said. So any inaccuracy in what I say is my fault, not Jeff's fault. So Jeff, as I said, used four chairs to describe the four souls, four kinds of people and their spiritual condition. These are four kinds of people with whom we rub shoulders with every single day. Believer, unbeliever, doesn't matter. So in the first chair, he had us envision the natural man sitting there. Now, the natural man means the natural human being, the human who is not yet regenerate, who has not been filled with the Holy Spirit to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That's called the natural man, the natural person. This is everybody before salvation. This person is spiritually disconnected, meaning there's not even a pretense of being a person of faith. If there is a God at all, he certainly isn't worth the time of making time for him. If you are sitting, if you know that you are sitting in that first chair, regardless of how you see this parable, it's talking about the disinterested, unconcerned person. And in the classic understanding of the parable, the next two soils or the next two chairs refer to individuals who at the end of the day are understood in the classic sense to be unsaved as well, with only the fourth chair, as I said, being the real person of faith. But viewing this as a parable describing the challenge of growing in faith and obedience to the word, the second chair represents the cultural Christian. This is the Christian who has one foot in the kingdom and one foot very much outside the kingdom. Again, I like that because it correlates well with the second soil. There's an initial attempt on the part of the Christian now. Remember, we're talking about believers at this point, though, for the Christian to give God his due, but there's little success of commitment with God being essentially an add-on to a busy life. Now, this can be a seasonal thing. Remember, we're talking about the saved people now at this point. A whole different view of the classic understanding. I know I'm probably confusing you, but hang on. I hope it gets clearer. We can think of the third chair as the discipled Christian. 
the discipled Christian certainly has vestiges of a biblical Christian being in the word with some consistency even. And they may even be involved in a small group and they might even have a few healthy disciplines down. But the pursuit of God is pretty much still self-centered. It's basically my pursuit of God is for me and what I can get out of it. This Christian enjoys learning new things. To be sure, they even attempt to apply what he's learned, but as far as passing anything on to anyone else, that's not happening. If he's involved in a group of believers, as I said, it's much more of a convenience situation for personal benefit rather than for sacrifice. Fruit is present, but it easily can become and sometimes does become dormant for a season. And how long that season is, who knows. The fourth chair, the fourth soil, is God's desire for everyone who claims him as Lord. Jeff called the fourth chair the servant leader. This is the follower of Christ who is actively learning, who is actively growing, who is actively applying and passing on what he, she has learned and applied. The servant leader or the fourth chair is both a disciple and a disciple maker. The fruit is evident and it's ample. So the question in now this view of the parable is not as in the classic view whether I am the fourth soil, because as I said, that's the only soil of the saved person, but rather now that I am saved, Which chair am I sitting in at any given moment in my walk of faith? Let me use a couple of examples that also may not be great, but again, to help you now see where I'm coming from here. All right, so we're not questioning the fact that you're saved. You are saved. We're not talking about the classic understanding. We're talking about this new way of looking at this parable. So there you are. You're a saved individual, and you're standing around the proverbial water cooler at work, your colleagues are routinely there day in and day out talking about varying and asunder things, sunder things. And on this particular day, they're talking about the Supreme Court's decision regarding homosexual marriage. Now, you have always had a tepid conviction, tepid conviction. That means warm or weak, loosey-goosey conviction about most of the hot-button social issues of the day. Everything from the woman's right to choose to sex education in the grade schools to same-sex attraction to transgenderism as a publicly funded right. But you never say anything. You just listen to the prevailing voices of the culture. Before you know it, your views of what used to be pretty clear The moral issues of the day have now become very mushy. And when anything comes up, you tend to actively or passively affirm the prevailing thoughts of the day, being content to be thought well of rather than to be thought intolerant or narrow-minded. Chair number two has become one of your favorite recliners to where outside of an occasional ticket, punction, punk, punk, ticket punching of your religion card on Sunday morning, you're pretty comfortable being there too in that chair. Let me try another example here. 
okay, I've made some real strides in my life of faith. But there are still areas, I think this is true of everybody. There's still areas in my life, and again, this is hypothetical, but I'm saying this, there's still areas in my life where I've always seen to, my mind just keeps kind of coming back to that. I'm like, Lord, are you trying to tell me something in this? Or I may even be at that point where I'm going, no, the Lord is saying to me, speaking to me on this, but you know what? I don't want to hear it now. I'm tired of hearing it. I'm pretty content with where I'm at, and so just go away, Holy Spirit. Leave me alone. I know I've been holding back of giving you your due, Lord, in the tithe and, and in my service to the body of Christ. But holy moly, 10%? I mean, come on, that's a lot of money. And, you know, I'm up to my eyeballs in debt. And there I am, as a believer, plopped in chair number two, my favorite recliner. But somehow... The Lord keeps throwing things in my face that I know is him, and he's trying to bring me to his place in these issues in my life for my benefit. But I'm not having any of it. Besides, the church doesn't need the money, and I don't have time to help in anything. So to the unbeliever, the Spirit asks, when are you going to get out of that? first chair and give your life to Christ. But from that point on, we're talking now about this being a discipleship parable, not the salvation parable. The believer needs to ask himself very soberly, which chair or chairs will I be shifting in and out of today or tomorrow or at the end of the week or next month or next year regarding what issues or issue the Lord is trying to grow in me at that moment. Because at any given moment, the condition of the soil of my believing heart can be chair number two or chair number three when God wants it to be chair number four. So there I am, Bill Cripe. I get up in the morning. I'm outside working, using power tools, which is always a mistake. I've cut a mitered corner, attempted to cut a mitered corner for the ninth time now. I'm gathering a big pile of kindling. And on the tenth time, a part of me that is not yet sanctified, oh, it happens, takes me back to my days in the airborne. Now, there's nobody around, thank goodness, to hear me, other than my pile of wood and maybe my schnauzer, but he only speaks German. Uh, And it's something that it's like, yeah, man, I know, I know, God, but really, I mean, come on, in the grand scheme of things, look, there's nobody around, so get off my back. See, I... I just took a seat now in chair number two or chair number three, most more than likely there, chair number three. And I'll stay in that chair on that particular issue until I decide to do what God wants me to do, to grow me in that area. But the longer I stay in that chair, the weeds keep growing up and the thorns start growing up and they start choking at least an element of my Christian walk that God wants me to get the victory over. Now, in any given day, I can be... I'm trying to sit in two chairs at one time, depending on what the issue is. 
oh, yeah, I had the perfect opportunity right there to tell that cashier they're totally out to lunch about the statement they just made to the person before me about the hot-button social issue of the day, but ah, squeak, 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 squeak. Little mousy man. I was afraid of persecution, somebody giving me a bad look or whatever. I'm back in that second chair. See, So as the believer all through our lives, man, we're popping in and out of these chairs when God wants us, to, uh, the recliner, to become that fourth chair. And we see this parable then becoming a parable about Christian maturity and about discipleship. I've not changed the parable about salvation. First three chairs, people not saved. Fourth chair is the only one saved. But now once we are truly saved, nobody's perfected, right, until heaven. Oh, we are perfect in Christ, but nobody is perfected, perfected until we stand with him in our new bodies and everything that's involved with the consummation of all of our salvation. And so we bounce in and out of those chairs, and it's a continuum with fits and starts, as you well know. And God wants us all in that last chair all the time, and that is to be our goal. Does that make sense a bit? Yeah, okay. No, no, I'll, cut. I'll quit. No, 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 quit, 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 quit. All right, let me have Scott Ludick come on up. He's our, was my, there he is, my praying elder today. Let me have you stand. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that we ask you to to plow and to till our hearts so that every day we strive to to become soil number four, a soil in which your words and your will can grow and can be manifested in, in how we live. The deeds that we do, the thoughts that we think, and the words that we sow to others. Words that hopefully start with you and we just complete the circuit. Lord, there's a great responsibility and yet there's also a wonderful privilege with being soil number four. Help us to embrace that privilege and the responsibility of it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.